Well, as, uh, as is obvious, we're returning uh, to this section of John chapter 4, where we have Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Now, we missed being together last week, so, so we remember that the week before we had started in on this chapter by looking at the first six verses, uh, in which we have Jesus leaving Judah and making His way north to Galilee. Uh, that's what we're told there. And, and in so doing, Jesus passes through uh, Samaria. And along the journey, as he's in the midst of Samaritan territory, he stops by this well where we're told he's tired, he's thirsty there. His disciples go off to find food, and he ends up in this uh, interaction with a, with a woman who comes to draw water from the well. And so last time, we looked at some details that John records for us in verses 1 to 6, noting elements of what Jesus' faithful ministry looked like. Uh, so we talked there about how Jesus has tension in his ministry. We saw that in verse 1 where there's tension building with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders of the day. Um, so there's tension present in his ministry. And then there's also a divine necessity that attends his ministry. Uh, we, we mentioned how in verse 4 we have that phrase, Jesus had to go up through Samaria. And we talked about how that uh, word there translated from the Greek that means had to or must actually becomes a technical term in John's gospel, uh, pointing to the fact that Jesus must fulfill the mission that God has called him to. So there's a divine compulsion there in Jesus's ministry. And then we also talked about Jesus's weariness uh, as, he, as he faithfully seeks to fulfill uh, his, his purpose under God. He finds himself tired and worn out. And so as we considered all those different aspects of Jesus' ministry, we could be encouraged in our own, recognizing that as we desire to serve Christ faithfully, as we're servants of Christ, we can face these same kinds of things. We have tension at times. We can uh, have a sense of divine compulsion as we desire to serve Christ faithfully. And then, of course, there is certain weariness. We get tired as we, as we live faithful lives serving Jesus. So we spent our time in those first six verses of chapter 4 last time visiting uh, those truths. And then in the verses that come now, we get into the, into the significance of this interpersonal exchange between Jesus and, and this, this Samaritan woman whom he meets. And in this exchange, we find, as we would expect, extraordinary expressions of gospel truth because as we study this, what we see is that on the one hand, there are unique elements present in the life of, of the woman whom Jesus meets and ministers to. There's some uniqueness here, but what we also discover is that there's something present in this interaction that reflects not just this woman's needs, uh, but what's here actually reflects all our needs in an ultimate sense, and we see Jesus as the one who makes provision for those needs. Um, so, so as we study this, we discover that, that in the broadest sense, what's true of the woman at the well is true for us also, and that there's a picture for us to pay attention to here. And then, of course, the glorious thing is that what's true for Jesus and, and His interaction uh, with the woman there is also true of Jesus and the way He comes and, and uh, brings grace to us. Uh, so again, there's help here uh, in this narrative as we feel our own genuine need and as we're, as we're helped through this interaction to see that the way uh, Jesus comes to us and provides completely and fully for our need is, is something that can be greatly encouraging. And maybe this morning, even as we're gathering, it's that word need uh, that summarizes where you're at today. You're needy. Now, there's a sense in which, uh, whether we feel it or not, for all of us, the word needy does summarize our condition. Sometimes we feel that more acutely than other times, but we're needy people. Um, I was reminded of this in, in, in the introduction uh, of his book, The Four Loves, where C.S. Lewis comments 
on our neediness when he describes our love for God as not just a love for God, but he actually calls it a need love. Uh, and, and in part, this is how he explains it. Let me just read a little bit of this to you. He says this, um, this is obvious, that is our need for God's love is obvious, he says, when we ask him for forgiveness for our sins or support in our tribulations. But in, in the long run, it is perhaps even more apparent that our whole being by its very nature is one vast need, incomplete, preparatory, empty yet cluttered, crying out for him who can untie things that are now knotted together and tie up things that are still dangling loose. <laughs> so we're needy, C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying that, that our love for God is actually a needy kind of love. That, that neediness reflects our transcendent need for reconciliation with God. It reflects our need for forgiveness and, and reconciliation that God offers through Christ and His cross. And that neediness is represented in all the parts of life where things are tied up that need to be untied and where things are untied that need to be tied up. We're needy people, and we recognize that. And what Jesus demonstrates in this interaction with the woman at the well is that He is the one who provides that, that need love that we have. Uh, Jesus is the answer to our lacking. He's God's love incarnate, come to bring us from a place of emptiness and lostness to a place of full and lasting life. And so as we get into this narrative, we have this truth about Jesus' provision displayed in a few main ways. And, and we'll take this week and, and next week, maybe even the week after, we'll see how far we get. But we'll take some time to work through the totality of this dialogue with the woman at the well. For our study today, uh, we're just going to focus on verses 7 to 9, where the need that Jesus provides for is centered on the reality of distance. There's a distance that's represented here. As we go on, we'll see that, that Jesus also provides the gift of life. He provides revelation. There are all these provisions that come throughout this narrative. But for, first of all, to begin with, we see that Jesus provides for our distance. Um, and distance is something that we can relate to. Oftentimes we encounter distance that, that uh, must be overcome in all kinds of different situations. Uh, we can have this uh, in dating relationships this week, I was thinking about this because this week marked 25 years since Julia and I started dating. We've since got married, but since we started dating, um, and, and for a solid year of our dating life, we lived some distance apart where she was up in Seattle for school and I was still down here. Uh, so there was this distance and it wasn't a pleasant distance. I spent a lot of hard-earned Domino's pizza delivery driver money uh, going up and seeing her in Seattle every chance I could, and, and I did that because that was a distance in my life I wanted closed. Right. I, did, I didn't want to be separated from her. Uh, I wanted the distance between the two of us to be gone. And so there are these distances that exist in our lives that, that we need to have closed. And, and that is nowhere more true than in our relationship with God Himself. Right. By nature, we're born into a condition of unreconciled distance with the God who made us. All of us are. We're born in a position that leaves us rejecting God, turning against God. We want to be in charge of ourselves. Every three-year-old will testify to that. Right? And quite frankly, every 43-year-old can testify to that in the room this morning. Our posture is not one that says, Lord, I want you to be master of my life and I long to submit to your good way. That is not our posture. Our posture, as a matter of nature, is, is, is one of rebellion. So in the words of, of the poet Henley, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Right? Except that we're not. Right? We're not our own because we're creatures. 
which means we have a creator. We belong to the one who made us, and yet we live like we belong to ourselves. And so instead of being in a reconciled place of peace with the one who gives us life and breath and everything, instead, we're in a place of eternally dangerous distance. And our need is to have that distance bridged. We, we need the gap closed if we're going to find true life. We need a rescuer to come, which of course is who Jesus is revealed to be. John, John has already said that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus comes to provide for our distance from God need. And then that's a truth that's illustrated very significantly in our text this morning. So so here we are with Jesus and the woman at the well, and, and the first main truth that we can unpack here is that Jesus is the one who deals with our distance. And so we're going to think about this from verses 7 to 9, and then we'll, we'll move through some of this passage too just to, to put some details together. But if you just have an eye on verses 7 to 9, we'll start by noticing something here about the initiation of Jesus. Uh, what, what we see from the beginning is, is really a wonderful picture of the fact that Jesus is the one who undertakes closing the distance that exists. He takes the initiative. And we see this in verse 7, where we're told that a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and then Jesus initiates this interaction, saying to her, give me a drink. He's the one who engages her. Now, now we're going to talk in much more detail here in a moment about the significance of Jesus speaking with this particular woman. He's crossing all kinds of various, uh, presumed barriers as He does this, and we're going to talk about that next. But what we want to start by seeing is that Jesus is not the one who is passive or reactive here, but instead He's the one who's pursuing. Jesus is the one who who not only had to to travel through Samaria, like we saw back in verse 4 last time, there's this divine compulsion, but now He's the one engaging and starting this dialogue with a lady who, as we'll discover, is distanced in many ways. And so so what we see first in this interaction is that Jesus is the one to initiate. Jesus closes that distance. He starts the conversation that will ultimately lead to this woman's salvation as the chapter goes on. And not just the woman's salvation, but actually through her witness, many in her town are going to believe in Jesus, we're told later in this chapter. And it starts because Jesus initiates. Jesus closes the distance. And in this, we see something of the, of the fundamental truth of what it means that Jesus is the center of the good news message. Right? Because here we're reminded that Jesus is the seeker of those who are far from Him, which, which by His own confession is exactly how Jesus describes His purpose for coming into the world. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, He says very directly, I came to do what? I came to seek and save the lost which is a theme that's present in our chapter later on, actually, when it's, it's not just Jesus who seeks, but Jesus says in our chapter down in verse 23 that God the Father is seeking worshipers. I think in our CSB translation, it translates that word as want, but it's the seeking word. Seeking is better. The Father is seeking worshipers. Uh, Jesus seeks. God the Father seeks. There's a distance that exists, and Jesus comes according to God the Father's plan in the power of the Holy Spirit, in order to seek out those who are far from Him. Which is a very critical truth to understand about the gospel. Because on the one hand, we might might say to ourselves or of others, you know, people around us, we ourselves at times, we're so often seeking God. People around us are seeking to know the truth. They're, They're seeking to understand what can really bring them life. And there's a sense in which we can legitimately say that. 
In fact, Paul makes that comment, uh, referring to humanity on the whole, that, that God has appointed times and places we live so that we might seek Him. Acts chapter 17, Paul says that very directly. And, and at some level, we see this going on. They're seeking on the part of humanity. There's, there's some who may have a, a philosophical interest in a, in a higher order being who stands over all things. So there's philosophical seeking going on around us. And then, and then there are some who may have a kind of magical interest in the notion of God. When, when things are hard, they may pray, hoping for relief. If they just say the right words, they're seeking in that way. Or there are some who, who can have a mystical interest in God. There's some spiritual force um, that, that will warm my heart or, or reduce my anxiety or, or move me to a higher plane of self-awareness. There, there's, a, there's a seeking of a godish kind of thing there. So at one level, there's a sense in which we can be seekers of God. Paul says it in Acts 17. We can say it too. We see it around us. Uh, there's this seeking element to our humanity. But ultimately, this seeking is disordered seeking. Right? So one writer puts it this way. Our sinful self-centeredness controls all spiritual searching for meaning and experience so that we will try simply to get blessings from God, keeping control ourselves and expecting or demanding that God serve us and shape Himself to fit our needs. So that's us as seekers of God. I'm looking for you, God, so that you can serve me and fit in how I want you to fit in. So our seeking is, is defunct in that way. It's not life-giving seeking. It's self-centered seeking. And the Apostle Paul knows this because not only can he make that comment in Acts 17 about how humanity's placed so they can seek after God, but he speaks in more significant detail in Romans chapter 3 where he addresses our deep down lost condition as humanity. And he says in Romans 3 that ultimately there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. And you remember what he says next? There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. You see, fundamentally as humanity, we're not genuinely seeking God. Instead, our hearts are turned away from God. Our condition is one of rebelling against His truth and His lordship, and we seek satisfaction in alternatives that only increase our distance from true life. And what is God's response to this? Well, His response of grace is Jesus. Jesus comes as the better seeker. He comes as the initiator, as the one who is our only hope of bridging that infinite gap between our lost condition and God's holy goodness. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how John begins. And then what? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus comes as the seeker of those who are at great distance. And as we'll see, especially when we get into the details of the distance of the woman at the well next, we see that a wonderful gospel truth is illustrated here and that the woman comes and she doesn't initiate with Jesus for many reasons. She's not in a position to do that at all. She doesn't initiate with Jesus, but Jesus initiates with her. He bridges the distance. Give me a drink, he says to her. Jesus, the initiator, and the fruit of this initiation is going to be the woman's salvation. So, so it may be, even as we think about this, that, that you, you find yourself living under a heavy burden of thinking that the distance between God and you is a distance you have to close. 
That's very much how we can find ourselves, even as we're living the Christian life. That, that kind of thinking can, can work its way into our minds. The distance between God and I is a distance that I'm responsible for closing. But here's the thing. It's a way bigger distance. It's a way bigger span than we can ever close. We can't do it. Trying is futility. The gap is just too big. Sin is too bad. My heart is too sour and torn and dark. That's the bad news. Left to ourselves, we can't effectively seek God and close the distance. But the good news is this. Jesus did. He sought us and closed the distance for us, which is, which is what Jesus did ultimately on the cross as He took the penalty for the sins of those who will trust in Him. He took our penalty, paid that price, reconciles us to, reconciling us to God so that we are now holy in His sight. Now we're not alienated from God, but we're actually brought so near the Scriptures can speak of us being God's children. The Holy Spirit gives new life to our hearts, so we believe this truth and we come to God in reconciled faith. So so we take this to heart. When I consider my standing before God, I must not consider my standing based on my distance-closing performance. Have you ever considered your your relationship with God based on your distance-closing performance? We can do that at times, but we must not do that. Instead, we must consider our standing before God based on much more glorious truth. In fact, the hymn writer puts it best, so I'm going to read you a couple stanzas of this hymn. It says this, Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear this awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. And then he says, Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. You see, Jesus is the initiator of the gap closure. He closes the distance. He comes for us. He calls to us. He dies for us. He lives for us. He sends His Holy Spirit to fill us. He'll return for us. He closes the distance. A woman from Samaria comes to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus says to her. Jesus initiates. It's a wonderful picture of that. So Jesus closes the distance. Now now let's say uh, just one other thing here about the nature of that distance. Actually, we're going to say a bunch about the nature of the distance, not just one other thing, a few things. Um, so there's something about the nature of the distance that's very emphasized here. Remember in the prior chapter, in, in John chapter 3, Jesus has interacted with this man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a man whom Jesus referred to as the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus, he was a reputable, uh, as reputable a man as they come. He's a prestigious Jewish leader. He came in a dialogue with Jesus, which seems very nice and very appropriate. I will ignore the fact that he came under the cover of darkness for his own concerns. You know, there, there was that. But, but this is just the kind of upright interaction that seems so proper for Jesus to have. Jesus and the teacher of Israel. That's a, that's a good interaction. Meet the seminary professor. Maybe he's got a number of, of followers on social media. Jesus, it will really help you get the word out. There's a good, good kind of interaction for you to have. And then we get into this chapter. And given the cultural context, this woman at the well is everything opposite from a reputable conversation partner with Jesus. And John, our gospel writer, makes that reality very plain to us based on a number of different categories that are present in the narrative. So, so we're just going to think some of them out here for a moment. Um, there, there's enormous distance pictured here between Jesus and the woman as he initiates this dialogue. First of all, th- this woman is a Samaritan, verse 7. We're told that plainly, uh, which means that there was an ethnic distance between her and Jesus. Um, 
for us to read about a woman from Samaria, uh, that, that doesn't immediately seem all that significant to us as we read verse 7. But, but for readers familiar with this time in Jewish history, uh, this, this is a very critical thing. It reflects significant conflict. Um, and it's conflict that actually dates all the way back through biblical history, beginning in 722 B.C., where the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, which was territory now associated with Samaritan land. And when, when Assyria conquered Israel, uh, they carried many Israelites off to exile and, and, and repopulated the land with those who would be considered Canaanites. So in the language of the day, they would be pagan non-Israelites who are now repopulating the land. Assyria brought them in. And some Israelites who were not carried off into Israel, uh, into exile, they were actually able to stay in the land. They intermarried with these Canaanites who brought with them their, their alternative religious beliefs and all of these things. And the result of this intermarrying was the new group here known 700 years later as the Samaritans. So partly Jewish, partly Canaanite people. And, and so when the Jews did return from exile and repopulate parts of the land, they held animosity toward Samaritans. Samaritans held animosity toward them because they were not only in this, in this ethnic tension that was going on with this interracial situation, uh, but there were religious tensions, there were worship questions, pagan religion mixed in with, with the religion of, of, of the Jews. Uh, so put all that together, we have ethnicity conflict, political conflict, religious animosity. It was all present in this in this element so and, and all in all it ended up being the samaritans were just considered outside any kind of true belief categories according to jewish thinking in fact a strict jew would never do what jesus does in this chapter and share a water jar even with the samaritan for fear of becoming unclean uh, the distance runs very deep. In fact, in the generation following Jesus' ministry, it was actually uh, became part of rabbinical law that Jews were to regard Samaritan women as perpetually unclean from their birth. Right, so, so there's this huge distance that was very ethnically and religiously, politically charged between the woman and Jesus from the beginning. And this di distance is, is evident by the woman's response to Jesus' question where, where he says, give me a drink. Verse 9, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then just in case we don't get that, John adds a little editorial note there saying, yeah, they don't do that. Right? And so this distance is, is, is very evident in the text. And, and in a sense, John's indicating something that everybody knows uh, and, and that the woman herself is quite clear on. There is this barrier between her and Jesus. She's a Samaritan. And, and then it's not just that she's a Samaritan, but she's a Samaritan woman. In fact, this supposed barrier is emphasized twice in this chapter. Uh, first of all, here in chapter 9, where the lady doesn't just ask how Jesus, a Jew, could ask for a drink from a Samaritan, but, but how it is that he would ask for a drink from a Samaritan woman. So she recognizes that not just her ethnicity, but also her gender is part of the presumed distance that she thinks would exist between her and Christ. And we have this uh, evidenced again later on down in verse 27 where Jesus' disciples get back with food. We're told they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Again, for us, this doesn't register as all that remarkable, but, but in the context of the social climate for Jesus, especially for a Jewish religious teacher to be speaking with a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, in public, and not just in public, but at a well. You think of the Old Testament narratives. Who do you meet at wells? You meet your spouse at well. You go get your spouse and you find him in wells and all those uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob narratives, right? So, so this was a very taboo thing to do. It, it would have been perceived as flirtatious, very inappropriate, scandalous even for a Jewish religious teacher, at least, to, to be speaking. So, so Jesus is bridging this gender difference, uh, distance, 
as well as this ethnic distance that exists. And then, and then there's the moral distance. Uh, so we read later in this passage that Jesus speaks directly to this woman's uh, immoral condition of life as he reveals that he knows she's been married five times and was currently living with a man who's not her husband. Um, now we'll get into that more when we study that part, but, but this is an interesting point because so, some will argue here that this detail about the woman doesn't place her in an immoral category, but, but actually in the category of a victim. Um, so, so the thinking will go something like this. I'll just read one, uh, one commentator's take on this. It says, this woman is a victim of an abusive system where husbands can freely divorce their wives, leaving a woman used and helpless. And along those lines, then, it's because she's in this condition that even her most recent man will not marry her. So, so this marriage element that's referenced later on, it, it isn't actually a moral category in her life. It actually is a result of her being a victim of, of the cultural climate, some will say. Now, 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 there's truth to, to what a comment like that is, is referring to and that this culture made it much easier uh, for, for a man to divorce his wife than for a wife to divorce her husband. And material provision was often tied to the husband's trade. So an adult woman who was not married w- would have been in a very difficult position. That's all true. However, however, what's going on with this woman at the well is not first and foremost a victim situation, but a moral one. And we get that. Because later on, as her heart is moved by Christ and as she returns to her city where she will effectively witness to Christ down in verse 39, we have to note what the woman says about Jesus and about herself. If you look at verse 39, she doesn't say, this man told me everything that was done to me as if she was a victim. But her testimony is, this man told me everything I ever did. She's been confronted by Christ about her sexual sin. So, so, so there's not just an, an ethnic difference, uh, ethnic distance that's here, and there's not just a gender distance between the woman and Jesus, but there's also this moral distance. She's apparently an adulterous lady, and she's presently living with a man who she's not married to, which is a, is a condition of immorality. And so that informs what we can see as a, as a distance element that's, that's punctuated here um, in a final sense when we talk about the fact that there's also a social distance represented. Uh, that this woman is at the well at noon to draw water. We see that from verse 6. And, and we know that often, uh, while women were the ones who would come and draw water at wells in this setting, uh, wells were very much considered a, a, a gathering place, a, a, a place of interaction, interacting socially for ladies uh, during this time. Uh, they would come and socialize together. Literally, it was like the office water cooler. They'd, they'd gather around it and talk. But, but they wouldn't come at noon to do that. Noon, noon was too hot. I think we mentioned it last time, but, but it's so hot at noon in this region that society basically shut down for a couple of hours. Business stopped, court hearings stopped, um, farming and, and any kind of animal care stopped uh, over the noon hour just because it was too hot. And here's this woman coming to do chores, coming to, to the well at, at noon, like verse 6 tells us, and why would she be doing that? Well, no doubt, given her immoral history, this woman was a social outcast. She wasn't welcome. Uh, at, the, at the women's water cooler club that would have gathered later on in the cool of the evening. She was an outcast, so she comes at an outcast time. So, so we have all these categories, and there's so much more we could, we could go into on any one of these categories, but there's, there's all this big distance present between this woman and Jesus. There are all these supposed barriers, right? Ethnic, religious, political, gender, moral, social, all of these barriers. 
She's at a distance from Christ. But what does this tell us about distance and Jesus? Well, as we read on, Jesus not only offers her the gift of eternal life, but she turns out to be the most excellent witness to Jesus so far in this gospel, aside from John the Baptist and Jesus himself. She believes, and she tells a bunch of people in her hometown about Jesus, and they believe in verse 39. There's a sense in which, in which the nature of the distance between this woman and Jesus, by all cultural and, and social and religious, all the standards of the day, there's a sense in which the distance is so great between her and Jesus, but Jesus proves to be the one that makes short work of distance, all sorts of distance isn't enough to keep him from engaging with her and ultimately what happens is he makes the bridge that uh, the, that she crosses over they unite together as, her, as as he comes to her as as her savior and so this is so crucial for us to remind ourselves of even as we think about this and how John is putting a couple things together here in this passage right from the beginning because first of all we talked about how this distance between us and Jesus can be something uh, that we can be tempted to feel as though we must cover we need to take care of this span. Um, of course, the, the thing is we can't, like we were saying. Only Jesus is the truly effective seeker. He comes for us. He covers that distance. And John helps us to, to see that. But John, as he's writing his, his gospel, he, he desires for us to be believing in Jesus. He also knows uh, that there's a kind of thinking that can go in our heart, which includes not only that we desire to cover the distance ourselves, uh, but he also knows that we may not be believing in Jesus because it seems like the barriers are just too many. So, so now it's just the other side of things. It's not so much a case of, I have to get to Jesus to be okay, but now it's a case of, Jesus could never get to me because of all this stuff, you see. Barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier. And, may, and maybe you felt that in your life. My past has so stained me. Right? My background has so disqualified me. My present life is so tangled up in, in, in unrighteousness. Or, or we can even think to ourselves, quite frankly, my future ambitions, being honest out of my own heart, I know what I want right now is not what Christ calls me to either. There is barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier. Jesus could never get to me because of all of this stuff. He'd never cover the distance. And this passage comes and reorders that kind of thinking. There, there's a sense in which John couldn't have included a story with more barriers if he tried. Right? Moral, religious, political, gender issues, that this passage is loaded with stuff. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't step back or walk away. No, he actively offers this woman the living water that cleanses her and brings eternal life to her. He offers her the grace that he came to procure on the cross. So you see how, 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 how this is right dead center of what it means to comprehend the gospel. As, as the saying goes, the bad news is that we're far worse off than we ever imagined in our distance from God. We're, we're distanced from God. We're unable to find Him darkened in our hearts, unwilling to yield to Him. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus is bigger than our lost condition in that distance. And He's the one who spans the distance. And in His cross and resurrection, He provides life eternal for us who are by nature far from God, but who can by grace be brought near. It's possible for us to have the impression that we're very far from God's grace. Maybe in your life as a whole, or maybe, maybe even just in your week this week, you feel that you're, you're far from God's grace, and we can be renewed in this truth. The distance is real, but for us as we trust in Christ, the distance is covered. And while we might feel far at times, 
We must rest in this truth that Jesus is the one who's come near. He sought us out. He's called us through the Spirit's ministry to come and find rest in Him. And new life comes and with it Christ's promise of rest and forgiveness and eternal life because He's the one who provides for us in our need. So a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. Jesus proves to be the one who covers the distance for which we are eternally thankful. Let's pray together. So, Lord Jesus, we praise you for the grace that you've shown to us, that you entered into the reality of our human experience, and you proved to be the Savior that we need. You proved to be the one who lifts us up when we're bowed down, that your uh, grace is sufficient to not only save us, but to maintain us and to help us persevere. We pray uh, that the distances we might experience as we consider our own lives and as we uh, know the realities of our own hearts, that those uh, would be seen in light of the bigness of your power and the vastness of your grace, that we would be quick to turn to you knowing that you're the one who covers that gap and reconciles us with the God who made us and who keeps us in that reconciled position. We're thankful for that and we praise you for it. Amen.